17. TCH fullness might be redoubled. His deliberate purpose was, indeed, to pollute my mind, to show me that my easiest course was to fall in with his wishes. And now as we hastened along the streets, I determined to try to lead him to believe that his efforts were already beginning to prove successful. I believe that other money was bad, too. I said, oh, you do, do you, Jackie? He answered, yes, I cried, and you make it downstairs at your house, Jackie, my lad, you haven't forgotten the story I told you about the boy who was too clever, still, I replied, one needn't be a fool although one needn't be what you call too clever, true for you, my lad, said Mr. Parsons, only, I continued, playing my part with as much skill as I possessed, and more than I could have believed myself capable of a few days ago. I don't want to get locked up. Number number he answered. I don't want you to get locked up either. Jackie. I should miss you. You know. Very much. But you act sensibly. And you will be alright. What's more. I will show you how to make your fortune before we have done. I should like to make a fortune. I said. With perfect truth. But. Still. As we walked home by a roundabout way. Without attempting any further business that morning. I could not quite make up my mind whether I had succeeded in hoodwinking my companion or not. Continued on page 162. The boy tramp. Continued from page 159. At least Mr. Parsons could not fail to be aware that I now understood something of the truth about his occupation. While I had certainly done my utmost to make him believe that I regarded it without any deep dislike. Had I succeeded or not? On the answer to that question my prospects of escape to a great degree depended. When we reached the house, his manner undergoing no change, I went to bed more hopefully than usual. During the morning we had walked round a large block of buildings forming one shop, with three doors in Oxford Street and two in another street behind. Now, if I could induce Mr. Parsons to let me enter by one of the front doors, it would be easy enough to pass through and make an escape from the rear for he had never yet accompanied me into a shop, during the next few days, however, we did not go near Oxford Street, the first day was wet, so that Mr. Parsons stayed at home, and when the weather changed, we took a train to Oxbridge, where I succeeded in exchanging five half-crowns not without many self-reproaches, the next day being Sunday, none of us left the house, and I think this was the most miserable time of all that I spent beneath Mr. Parsons' roof. I missed the Sunday service, and felt very lonely and helpless. At last, pretending to be overcome by drowsiness, I asked permission to go to bed at seven o'clock. Whether or not it was due to the brightness of the morning, I awoke with a sense of an accustomed exhilaration, and something seemed to assure me that I should find my longed-for opportunity to escape before night. Chapter XIX As to what was to happen if I escaped, I had very little idea. Once let me get away from my present surroundings, and nothing else seemed to matter, things could not easily become worse. But, as a matter of fact, I had thought once or twice that I would run the risk of trying to discover Rogers, Captain Dalton's servant, who had certainly not accompanied him on board the Seal. I knew that Captain Dalton had given up his rooms before he left England, but still I might succeed in finding someone who could tell me where Rogers lived and I felt certain the man would help me if possible. Hitherto I had determined to avoid the Albany, thinking that Mr. Turton would take care to anticipate me, and perhaps make arrangements for my capture, for, in spite of all I had passed through, 
I shrank as much as ever from the idea of returning to Castlemore, and Augustus and the other fellows at Ascot House. Still, I had in my pocket only the bad half-crown which Mr. Parsons had given me in the train, and it seemed wiser to take the risk of being intercepted, and to make my way to Captain Dalton's old quarters. But at present I stood no chance of making my way anywhere alone, and the first thing I had to do was to get clear of Mr. Parsons and the Loveridges. A lovely morning, Jackie, Mr. Parsons remarked on Monday, as he took my arm and led me away from the house. Makes me feel quite young again. Which way are we going? I asked. Ah, now, which way? I like Oxford Street best. I answered. Do you, my lad? He cried, amiably. Then suppose we try Oxford Street. There were a great many people in the street, and it was about eleven o'clock in the morning when I found we were drawing near the shop which I had planned to enter by one door and to leave by another. Couldn't we buy something there? I asked. Where? My lad, there, I said, pointing to the chief entrance, that is too dear for the likes of us, Jackie, oh, I cried, but I know what I could buy, what, he demanded, and I began to wonder whether I had betrayed too much eagerness, an evening necktie, I replied, they only cost about fourpence, Jackie, said Mr. Parsons, and I felt his grasp on my arm tighten, Jackie, that is the sort of shop a lad like you might easily get lost in. He might even make a mistake in the door. Jackie, remember we won't go in there, but I will tell you where we will go. Where? I asked, quaking with fear. We will go home, my lad, and I will give you such a nice little lesson as you will never forget as long as you live. So we turned back the way we had come, walking towards the marble arch, and I knew that if once I entered that hateful house, I should pay a terrible penalty for the attempt which had been so easily seen through. For the next few minutes I was utterly hopeless and helpless, but I murmured a few incoherent words of prayer, and my head grew clearer, as the danger drew nearer with every step I took, my courage began to return, and I determined to make a bid for freedom, Mr. Parsons' threat in a way defeated his own end, hitherto the fear in which I held him had served to cow me, to make me afraid to make a dash for liberty, but this morning the very danger seemed to encourage boldness and as we went on our way with his strong fingers gripping my arm just above the wrist, yet in such a manner that he appeared to be holding me affectionately, I cudgeled my brains to devise some method of circumventing him. At last, as we were close to Duke Street, Oxford Street, a bold plan flashed across my mind. Whatever was done, it should be attempted while there were some people about, to whom, in the last resort, I might denounce Mr. Parsons, and yet I did not wish my actual deed to have a spectator, since anyone who saw me treat such a benevolent-looking old gentleman as I fully intended to treat Mr. Parsons must think I was a young rascal. He hesitated a moment at the corner, and then turned to his right down Duke Street, and I fancied that he looked forward with some enjoyment to the threatened little lesson. A short distance ahead stood a policeman at a street corner, and, as we approached, I looked up into Mr. Parsons' face and summoned all my courage it was certainly the courage of despair. If you don't let me go, I said, I will tell that policeman who you are as we pass. In an instant he had swung me round to retrace his steps, but, doubling my free fist, I drew back my arm and hit him with all my strength just about the belt. The effect was instantaneous, releasing me at once. He was completely doubled up, standing in the middle of the pavement outside a grocer's shop his hands pressed against his body, 
gasping for breath. Fortunately no one had seen the blow struck. Ball Mr. Parsons was soon surrounded by a gaping, sympathetic group. I took to my heels at once, almost running against the policeman, and turned to my right, in the direction opposite to that of Mr. Parsons' dwelling place. Soon, however, I ceased to run, feeling fairly certain that I should not see him again that day, at least, and as I walked still towards the city I tried to take stock of my situation, besides the clothes I stood in, I possessed only a bad half-crown, and although I had, under compulsion, changed similar coins for Parsons, I had no intention of defrauding anybody on my own account, taking the coin from my pocket, I stooped and dropped it down a grating, now that I had nothing, I determined to risk a visit to the Albany, which I reached always on the lookout for Mr. Parsons at a little past two o'clock, nothing, however, but disappointment awaited me here, I saw a man who appeared to be a kind of porter, and he told me that Captain Dalton had given up the rooms on leaving London a fact which I knew perfectly well already, but he had no notion where I could find Rogers, so that I walked away in a somewhat dejected mood. Nevertheless I was able to rejoice at the successful escape from something much worse than I had yet endured, and having once triumphed over Parsons, I no longer feared him as I used to do, even if I met him in the street. I believed I could prevent him from taking me back to his house, and the more pressing difficulty was how to obtain food and shelter, and, subsequently, work, becoming hungry as the afternoon wore on, I went into Street James's Park, and, taking off my jacket and waistcoat, did not put the waistcoat on again, but carried it under my arm to a small pawnbroker's shop near Victoria Station, where I obtained eight pence in exchange, for my tall hat I received a shilling and then, passing a very cheap shop, I bought a grey cloth cap for threepence three farthings, so that on the whole I gained about one and fourpence by the deal, knowing that I must husband my resources, I bought a penny savoy and a chunk of bread at an eating house, and then wandered about the streets until nearly nightfall, wondering where I should sleep, the first night was, however, by no means uncomfortable, for, passing a large stable yard, I saw it contained several empty omnibuses, and, waiting until nobody was looking, I made a rush into one of these, I lay down at full length on the seat, and slept until a stable man woke me at half past five the next morning, but over the next few days I intend to pass rapidly, for indeed they were too full of wretchedness to be dwelt upon, from early morning until late at night I wandered about the streets or in the parks, where also I slept, I took every care of my scanty stock of money, but at last it came to an end, once I held a horse for tuppence, once I carried a heavy portmanteau from Charing Cross to Tottenham Court Road for a penny, and once a lady took pity on my condition and gave me threepence, then I parted with my jacket, and lived on the proceeds for three days while walking about with nothing above my shirt, continued on page 173, goodbye to the last fire, goodbye, old fire, we won't forget your pleasant warmth and glow. When evening shades were dark as jet, and outside lay the snow, but now, you see, we're right in May, it's spring, without a doubt, and so, good fire, I grieve to say it's time that you were out, the little leaves are springing green, the skies above are blue, the primrose everywhere is seen, the almonds blooming too, of course, you don't expect to stay when flowers are round about, and so, good fire, again I say it's time that you were out. But when, once more, November chill its cloak of mist has spread, 
and o'er the lonely winter hill the sun goes soon to bed, we'll call you back with joyous shout, and, as the shades descend, we'll draw the blinds to shut them out and greet you as a friend, John Lee, a hundred years ago, true tales of the year 1805, i.e., the story of Hans Christian Andersen, on the 2nd of April, 1805, was born, amid very humble surroundings, a little Danish boy named Hans Christian Andersen, who, in later years, became the most popular tale writer that perhaps the world has ever known. Andersen's fairy tales, though written in a past century, and for another generation, are just as popular today as they ever were, and it seems as if all children and grown-up people who have kept their childlike hearts could never tire of these delightful stories. We can all read, and re-read, The Ugly Duckling, or The Eleven Wild Swans, we can sympathize with the love of the faithful tin soldier, and who can resist laughing at all the outrageous performances of Little Claus and Big Claus. Truly, Anderson had the key to unlock all hearts. Now for the story of the writer's life. The father of Hans Anderson was only a poor shoemaker, but he loved reading and poetry, and seems to have taught his little boy a similar love. The shoemaker amused himself by making a toy theater for his little hands, and showed him how to work the puppets, and make them act little plays. This was a winter amusement. In the long summer days he would often take the child to the woods and here, in the great birch forests, the two would spend the hours, hardly saying a word to each other, but each dreaming his own dreams as they sauntered along the shady paths. But these happy childish days soon came to an end, the kind father died and Hans had to go to a charity school, where he learned little beyond reading and writing. Money was now very scarce in his home, and both Hans and his mother were often hard put to it for a meal. One day they went out into the fields to glean corn, and were chased off the ground by a cruel bailiff, who ran after them with a heavy whip. The bailiff, with his long legs, soon overtook the little eight-year-old Hans, and was about to bring his whip down on the child's shoulders, when Hans turned round and looking full at the angry man, exclaimed, How dare you strike me when you know God can see you? The bailiff was so taken aback at this rebuke from the mouth of a child that he dropped his whip, and, fumbling in his pocket, produced some money, which he offered to Hans to make up for his unkindness. A year or two later a widow wanted someone to read aloud to her, and Hans got the place. The widow's husband had been a poet, and, as Hans read out his poems, the boy's ambition was fired. I too will be a poet, he cried, and, on returning home, he at once set to work and wrote a tragedy. The news of this performance spread amongst the neighbors very likely the mother boasted of it, as mothers will, and all wished to hear it, so they came together in one of the larger cottages, and Hans read his wonderful tragedy to the company, and felt bitterly hurt when the greater part of them laughed heartily at the play. Meanwhile the mother was growing poorer and poorer and Hans had to leave school, and to try and earn his bread, he went to a large factory, and here the workmen, finding Hans had a good voice and knew many ballads, would get him to sing to them, and to act scenes for their amusement from the great Danish writer, Halberg, whilst another of the boys employed in the factory was told off to do Hans' work for him, after a time, however, the men tired of Hans and his songs, and he had to take his place amongst the other boys, who, being jealous of the notice that had been taken of Hans, led him a sorry life. At last he could bear their persecution no more, and left the factory never to return to it. The next few months he spent quietly at home, 
reading eagerly any book he could get hold of, and specially delighting in a copy of Shakespeare. The old toy theater was head out once more, and the puppets were put through the scenes of the Merchant of Venice and Kinlear. After a short time it was decided that Hans was to be apprenticed to a tailor. Hans, however, had other ambitions than to sit cross-legged on a board, he had read much lately of famous men, and he now said to his mother, I want to be famous, too. He had his plans all made, and had, he said, plenty of money to carry them out, for he had lately earned the immense sum as it seemed to him of thirty shillings, by singing and reciting at the houses of rich people. With this capital he begged his mother to let him go to Copenhagen and try his fortune. She consented in willingly at last, and the fourteen-year-old boy set off to make his own way in the world. He reached Copenhagen the city which now proudly claims him for her own late one September afternoon, and at once went to the theater and begged for employment, telling the manager he had a good voice and loved acting. You are too thin for the stage, said the manager, shortly. Let me have a salary of a hundred dollars, sir, and I will soon grow fat, quickly answered the boy. We only take people of education here, said the manager, and poor Hans had to go away with a heavy heart. Could he only have foreseen that in a few years' time his own plays would be acted at that very theater, and a throng of eager citizens would be applauding the words of the now friendless boy. But this was all in the future. At present misery and starvation stared him in the face. At last, after he had met with endless failures, a rich Copenhagen merchant saw there was genius in the boy, and, finding that he lacked education, sent him to school to learn Latin and mathematics. It was, of course, very galling to Hans, now a tall lad of seventeen, to have to sit on a bench with little boys of nine and ten, and be jeered at by both master and scholars for his backwardness. But Hans persevered, and at last he passed all his examinations, and was granted a traveling scholarship. Meanwhile he had published his first book, which was at once successful. The promise of his boyhood began to be fulfilled, for he wrote the fairy tales by which he became famous, not only in his own country, but all over Europe. He traveled in Italy, France, Germany, and Spain, and in 1847 he came to England, where, to his great delight, he found his stories better known than even in his own country. He was a welcome guest at many of our great houses, and, on a second visit to England some few years later, he stayed with Charles Dickens at Gad's Hill. Anderson never married, he lived in Copenhagen when not on his travels, and here he loved to gather around him children of all ages and all ranks, whom he would delight with some of his wonderful tales. On his 70th birthday he was fairly overwhelmed with letters and presents of kindly greetings from all parts of the globe, and these tokens of love and goodwill much pleased the old man. The end came a few months later, and on August 4th, 1875, Hans Christian Andersen died, regretted by all who had come in contact with him, and most of all by the band of children whom he had so loved to gather around him, heroes and heroines of famous books, I. I. the D.A.R.S.L.A.R., Hurry Harry, Deerslayer, Judith, and Hedy are the four principal characters in Cooper's famous book, which has delighted many thousands of readers, Hurry Harry, as he was nicknamed, his real name being Harry March had a dashing, reckless, off-hand manner, and a restlessness that kept him constantly moving about from place to place. He was six feet four in height, well-proportioned, with a good-humored, handsome face. Deerslayer was a very different man from Hurry Harry, both, 
in appearance and character. He, too, was tall, being six feet high, but with a comparatively light and slender frame. His face was not handsome, but his expression invited confidence, for it had a look of truth and sincerity. Hurry was twenty-eight years of age and Deerslayer several years younger. Their dress was composed of deer skins, and they were armed with rifles, powder horns, and hunting knives. The two men were guided by very different principles, those of Hurry Harry being entirely selfish, while Deerslayer sought, backwoodsman though he was, to live up to what he called white man's nature. Judith and Hetty were supposed to be the daughters of a man known as Floating Tom, otherwise Thomas Hepper, a man who had been a noted pirate in his younger days, but in his later years had settled down as he hoped, beyond the reach of the king's cruisers to enjoy his plunder. At the time at which the story is laid Britain and France were at war, fighting in Canada, and it is said that neither side had refrained from offering payment for scalps. Whatever excuse there may have been for tribes of Indians taking the scalps of their enemies, there can have been none for Christian white men, and so Deerslayer held, but not so Hurry Harry and Thomas Hepper, both of whom, as we shall notice, suffered for their cruel practices. If Hurry and Deerslayer were unlike in appearance, character, and principle, so, too, were Judith and Hetty. Judith was very handsome, quick-witted, fond of admiration and fine clothes. While Hetty was not beautiful to look at, Hetty was possessed of a weak mind, and cared little for the admiration of others. Although she was of an affectionate nature, her principles were good, and she ever sought to follow the good she knew, her constant companion being her Bible, for which she had the deepest reverence. While the good counsels of her mother, whose body rested beneath the waters of the lake beside which the family dwelt, were put in daily practice by the devoted child. Two other characters of the story deserve more than a passing word. One was Chingachuk the hunter, the other hissed, a lovable maiden, both of whom were great friends of Deerslayer, they were Delaware Indians by nationality. Concluded on page 171. Footnote, The Deerslayer, by J. Fenimore Cooper. There are several cheap editions published which can be easily obtained. Puzzlers for Wise Heads. 8. Rindemigiagiarian. 1. Now thin and plain. Now rich and sweet, but nearly all was good to eat. 2. A pigment painter's use when they the lovely blushing rose portray. 3. A garden tool we sometimes need when smoothing soil and sowing seed. 4. Our true regard for any friend, the purpose, final cause, or end. 5. To seize, to choose, to get, to hold, sometimes to catch, as we catch cold. 6. Active, alive, to cease from sleep. A noisy Irish feast to keep. CJB answers on page 195. Answers to puzzles on page 130. 6. 1. Cat. 2. Yes. 3. Will. 4. Pony. 5. Dry. Rat. Yet. Pill. Pond. Day. Rag. Pet. Pile. Bond. Way. Hag. Pot. Pine. Band. Day. Hog. Not. Pint. Bard. Pat. Dog, member pent, bear, pet, went, care, wet, won't, cart, seven, never despair, one, Paris, two, pair, three, rasp, four, beer, five, rip, six, near, seven, nerves, eight, Spain, nine, span, ten, drip, the two pupils, a Hindu fable, 
an old philosopher who had two pupils one day gave each a sum of money, and told them to purchase something with it, which should fill the room where they did their studies. One pupil went out into the market and bought a large quantity of hay and straw, and the next morning he invited his master to see his room, which he had almost filled with the results of his purchase. Ah, very good, very good, exclaimed the philosopher, and now turning to the other pupil, he said, well, friend, and what have you bought? A small lamp and some oil, which will fill the room with light in the dark evening hours. This will enable us to continue our studies by night as well as by day, if we should so wish, replied the pupil. You have made the best purchase, said the philosopher. A wise pupil, who profits by instruction, is the delight of the master, the duke and the traveler, for a quarter of an hour, during one of the greatest crises of the Battle of Waterloo, when the Duke of Wellington had sent all his aides de camp with orders to the different divisions of the army. He found himself alone at the very moment when he most needed help. While watching the movements of his troops through his field glasses, he saw Kemp's brigade beginning a maneuver which, if not promptly countermanded, would probably lead to the loss of the battle. But there was no officer at hand to convey his orders. Just then he turned round in his saddle, and saw not far off a single horseman, rather quaintly attired, coolly watching the progress of the strife. The instant the Duke caught sight of him, he beckoned to him, and asked him who he was, why he was there, and how he had passed the lines. He answered, I am a traveler for a wholesale button manufactory in Birmingham, and was showing my samples in Brussels when I heard the sound of the firing. Having had all my life a strong desire to see a battle, I at once got a horse, and set out for the scene of action, and, after some difficulty, I have reached this spot, whence I expect to have a good view. The Duke pleased with his straightforward answer, determined to turn his sense and daring to good account, and addressed him as follows, you ought to have been a soldier, would you like to serve your country now? Yes, my lord, said the other, would you take a message of importance for me? Touching his hat in military fashion the traveler replied, were I trusted by you, sir, I would think this the proudest day of my life, putting his field glass into the man's hands. The Duke explained to him the position of the brigade that had made the false move, and added, I have no writing materials by me, see, therefore, that you are very accurate in delivering my message. He then entrusted to him a brief, emphatic order, which he made him repeat, that there might be no mistake. The orders were barely delivered before the stranger was off at the top of his horse's speed, and soon disappeared amid the smoke of the battle. After a few minutes interval, the Duke turned his glass in the direction of the brigade which was at fault, and exclaimed, in a joyful tone, It's all right, yet, Kemp has changed his tactics, he has got my message, for he is doing precisely as I directed him, well done, Buttons, the Duke used to say he considered the alteration of Kemp's original movement the turning point of the battle, wishing to reward our hero for his intelligence and courage, he caused inquiries to be made for him in every direction but in vain, it was not till many years afterwards that he accidentally heard of the man's whereabouts, and managed to secure for him a good appointment in the west of England, in recognition of his services, never draw a sword except in a cause that is just and right, an English sailor, when traveling through France, arrived at the town of Vernon, where he met with a great crowd of riotous men and women, the mob had laid hands on a wealthy man, though he had done no wrong, and knew the use of money much better than they did, 
the rich man was to be hanged. In vain did the young sailor plead with the crowd, they only laughed at him, and pushed him aside with words of scorn. As a last resource he boldly pushed his way through the crowd, and with a strong grasp clung fast to the man who was so near his death. Above the wild yells and uproar, his voice was heard, This man has done no wrong. I come to save you from a great sin. If you hang him, you shall hang me too. The worst of hearts are often touched by a noble act of self-sacrifice, and the fearless words of truth. The Frenchman gave a cheer for the brave sailor, and were ready to carry him off like a hero. This gave time for the captive to escape. When the incident became known in Paris, the sailor received much honor, and a sword was presented to him, for they said, he who had no arms, and yet could save a stranger at the risk of his own life, will never draw a sword except in a cause that is just and right. The sailor became afterwards Admiral Nesham, who lived to serve his country for many years, and died at Exmouth in 1853. The pioneers, a crocus peeped out from its snow-covered bed, in a wood where the red robins sing, and sighed, I could fancy, where brown leaves are spread I heard the first footfall of spring, and e'en while it spoke, from a treetop above there fluttered the song of the wind, I come from the south, with a message of love, and the spring follows closely behind, then while the soft echo was stealing along, the snow melted gently away, and over the meadow of these early song told stories of April and May, the bluebell and primrose are blossoming fast, and see, where the snowdrifts still cling, the sun his rich mantle has gallantly cast at the feet of Her Majesty, Spring, Smithfield Tournaments, many chatterbox readers have, no doubt, visited Smithfield, and others have seen pictures of it as it was in the olden time, when it was known by its executions and burnings, upon Street Bartholomew's Eve, 1305, Sir William Wallace was put to death under the elms, a large clump of which then stood on one side of the open space, at Smithfield, 2, while Tyler Metkin Richard I.I., on June 15, 1381, when he received his death blow from the Lord Mayor of London, in more recent years it was familiar to the public as a big cattle market, now fortunately removed to a better spot north of London, evidently, 2, it was for centuries a very favorite resort with the citizens, the name at first, so historians think, being smoothfield, the level open space was turfed, and made suitable for horse exercise and a variety of sports, during the Middle Ages our kings had a palace in the city, and many of the nobles built themselves houses within the walls, or not far off, for some centuries tournaments were forbidden on account of their danger and they were seldom held in England till after the reign of Richard I. The position of Smithfield was very convenient for holding justs and tournaments. None but those who were esquires or knights were allowed to take part in these contests, which usually celebrated some important event, such as a royal marriage or a great victory. These tournaments gave an opportunity for a display of courtesy and chivalry. Galleries were arranged for ladies, and one in particular was chosen to preside who was usually called the Queen of Beauty. If any dispute arose, this lady settled it, and she also gave away the prizes awarded to the victors. A remarkable tournament was held in 1374 at Smithfield. A grand procession was started from the tower, the king rode first in a triumphal chariot, followed by a number of ladies on horseback, each of whom had a knight leading her horse by the bridle. Many gallant feats of arms were performed, and the tournament lasted a week. After the Battle of Poitiers, a three-day tournament took place in the cold weather of March, 
when the